Why do you worship God? And you don't have to answer out loud. In fact, I'd rather it be a contemplative kind of question, but I do want you to give it some thought. I want you to to contemplate it. Why do you worship God? Why do you worship Jesus as God? Maybe you've never had to think about that question. Maybe nobody's ever asked you that question. And so for some of you, maybe your pattern of worship, your, uh, your life, your relationship with God uh, is something that you've not really ever questioned. It's just kind of been a part of who you've been, maybe for some of you, your whole lives. But I want you to think about why you worship God as we wonder how, how important is worship? How important is Christian worship? I would even ask, what comes into your mind when you think about worship? You think about that term. Maybe what comes into your mind is, is a setting like this. Maybe what we're doing right now, you think, well, this is worship. We, you know, we didn't sing any songs, so we lacked that part of worship maybe, but maybe it's, it's like this. It's in a chapel, we're at a Christian school, and this is worship, or at least something like this. So maybe, maybe for you, you would say, uh, Sunday morning at church, that's worship. In a service, uh, in, a, in a building with people, that's worship. Or a, or a youth group gathering. Maybe some of you even attend youth group here, where, we're, where we are right now. And so when you meet with your youth group, that's worship. Or maybe you've been to a, a Christian camp. And, and in your minds, that's a, that's a worshipful experience. You think of being there as, well, that was worship when I was there. And how you answer these uh, questions likely depends on your own experiences, maybe even your, your vocabulary. So, for example, uh, if you've heard someone say about worship, or maybe you've even said things like this yourself, um... You know, man, I really enjoyed the worship today. I enjoyed the worship today. Uh, Or, if it's in the future, I'm really looking forward to worship tonight or on Sunday or whenever it it is that that it would take place. Then probably the way that you define or think about worship is is that for you, it's an experience. It happens occasionally. It happens at certain times times or places or on certain days you know maybe it's maybe it happens uh, once or twice a week you know for an hour or so at a time and in that case it's it would really be a lot like going out to eat I enjoyed going out to eat for that hour that I did it on Monday and you compare you know worship the same way or playing in a sporting event I enjoyed our game last night you might say or I didn't enjoy the game last night. Again, depending on, on how, your, uh, how, it, how it worked out for you. How did it go for you? How did worship go for you? And that might be how you would decide whether or not it was enjoyable for you or not. But maybe worship means something different for you. Or maybe it really doesn't mean much at all. Maybe you would even say, I'm not a worshiper. 
and 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 maybe maybe you would say that because either you uh, you don't attend worship or maybe you're you're attending a service but you're like I'm not really the kind who's going to sing loud I'm definitely not going to raise my hands I'm not going to kneel down like I'm not a real worshiper you might say or maybe you'd think that it's something that you only do rarely but I'm convinced worship is not just an occasional event it's actually a constant reality we're all doing it all the time whether we realize it or not. Now, I uh, want to look at the scriptures today. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. If you have a Bible uh, that you can pull out or you can look up on your devices, Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> so perhaps you're even thinking something like, how important is what we're doing right now? Why do we, why does our school set aside this time every week for chapel? How important is it really? But there are things that are going on in the world that are real. There are things going on that we can't see that are real, and those real things that are happening in the world are the reason that we worship. All right, book of Revelation. It was written by Jesus' apostle John. John had been uh, exiled. He'd been sent to live all by himself on a deserted island uh, during a time when many Christians were being pretty severely punished for their faith in Jesus. So, so it wasn't like he was sent to a tropical island for a vacation. He was sent uh, to a deserted island as punishment for following Jesus. And he wrote this book of Revelation not to give us the what most of us think about in terms of Revelation, not just to give us the, you know, the visions, the symbols, the images. Those things are important. But he wrote this letter mainly to urge Christians to faithfully endure in worship. He wanted to tell them our worship of Jesus is really important even when we're being opposed for worshiping Jesus. And that's why he wrote this letter. So read with me the very beginning. We're going to start in chapter 1. And I want to read from verses 1 through 8. And you can follow along while I read. Revelation 1, 1 through 8. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, 
and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So my original question at the, uh, at the beginning was this, why do you worship God? Why do you, why would you worship God? And in the time we have left, I want to I give you six reasons why we worship God. Or, or maybe we say six realities for worship, okay? So you don't have to take notes, I'll number them off. But, but what are the real things that are happening in the world that would help us to understand why we worship God? Why would we purposefully and not just occasionally, but constantly worship God? And John helps us to see these things Uh, in what we read. Here's the first reason why we worship God. Number one, we worship God because of who He is. We worship God because of who He is. So look back again at verse 4, and let's see what we're told about God. John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia, And he says, grace to you and peace from him. And here's how he describes God. Him who is and who was and who is to come. God was, God is, and God is to come. This is another way of saying that God is eternal. That God had no beginning. That God has no end, and that even now God really exists. So when we worship, and we have to discipline ourselves to think of it this way, when you and I worship, whether it's maybe now as we're looking at the Scripture, maybe it's when we sing, maybe it's other activities, you realize we are worshiping a God who really exists, a God who even now lives and hears and sees what we're doing, and we we live exist we exist for Him. He even now gives you life. So we think of God as as one who created and gave life at the beginning. You realize even now the reason that you have breath in your lungs is because God is right now putting it there. He really exists. He has existed in the past. He will exist forevermore in the future. He's not a lifeless force. He really is. He is eternal. He's constant. He doesn't change. John says he even gives grace and peace to his people, to these churches even. He is and he was and he is to come. Now, look at the next description there in verse 4. So, from Him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits 
who are before His throne. Now, if seven spirits are before God's throne, where is God? On the throne, right? God is on the throne, and around His throne, John says, there are seven spirits who are associated with God. They're associated with God because God uh, is, is on the throne, and the grace and peace is from God and from the Spirit. Now, in Revelation, you may know that normally when you read about seven things, that's usually an indication that that thing is somehow complete. It's all fulfilled. It's all, uh, you could say it's the fullness of it. It's the perfection of it. All right, so these seven spirits, uh, likely we should understand that to be the Holy Spirit. This is from the Holy Spirit, and He, the Holy Spirit, is perfectly and completely God Himself. So John is saying you have, believers, grace and peace from God who's on the throne and from His Spirit who's around the throne and... Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. He wishes them grace and peace from Jesus Christ. So, when we worship God, when Christians worship God, we're not just worshiping a vague deity. We are actually worshiping a trinity. We're worshiping the three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God on the throne, the Spirit around the throne, and Jesus, who is, and there's three things that are said about him. Did you did you notice that at the end of or in the middle of verse five? The faithful witness. What does it mean for Jesus to be the faithful witness? If you have uh, somebody who's, who's witnessed an event and you're trying to ask the person, okay, what happened at this event? Would you want to listen to a faithful witness or an unfaithful witness? Obviously a faithful witness, right? Because you want an accurate telling of what they've seen, not a deceptive one. So for Jesus to be the faithful witness means that everything about which Jesus testifies, whether it's about himself whether it's about His Father, whether it's about the world, even if it's about us, everything about which Jesus testifies is absolutely faithful. It is true. If Jesus says it, it's faithful. It is true. So, do you want to understand yourself best? You want to understand you. Do you want to understand your Life, your situation, our world, then I would say pay attention to what Jesus says about you and about reality because he is a faithful witness. He's also, according to verse 5, the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. This is another way of saying what Jesus says about Himself down in verse 18. So if you have it there in front of you, John 1, 18, Jesus says that He's the living one. He says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, this Jesus, who is the faithful witness, He literally 
conquered death. He literally overcame the grave. He says that he now possesses death. I have its keys. I own it. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and he is, at the end of verse 5, the ruler of kings on earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. So, the one who rules over death also rules over every human authority, past, present, or future. Every human authority. Think about the authorities in your life. Even in this room, you have authorities, right? You have teachers. Uh, you have coaches. You have parents. Uh, in, in government, you have authorities. We have authorities. Um, we have law enforcement. We have senators. We have congressmen. We have governors. We have a president. We have a vice president. We have authorities. We understand what it is uh, for people to possess authority, to rule over, to have authority over something, even whether it's a classroom or an athletic field or a nation. We understand the idea of authority. Some of you might be big fans of our current president. Some of you might be really nervous, even in middle school, maybe because of what you hear on TV or you hear your parents talk about. You might be really nervous about the elections in November. National leaders, world leaders even, will come and go, some for good, many for evil, but Jesus rules over all of them. Jesus rules even the kings of the earth, and we worship God because of that. So we worship God because of who He is. We also worship God because of what He has done for us in Christ. Verse 5 says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. What has God done for us in Christ? First, He loves us. Remember how I said you'll understand yourself best when you understand what Jesus says about you? What, is, what does Jesus say about you in this verse? That He loves you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. And how does He love you? How does He love us? How has He shown His love for us The verse says that He has freed us from our sins by His blood. There's never been love like this. You, No matter if you think of the most dangerous situation in your life that you've ever been in, where you thought your life was in the most possible peril, never has your condition been more perilous or more grave or more severe as when your sins are counted against you before God. So if you're here today and you understand yourself to not be a Christian, then even right now your sins are holding you captive in the sight of God. But for all who will believe the truth that Christ, by His blood, so by His death on the cross, Jesus purchased your pardon from sin. You can be freed from your sins by His blood. You can turn from those sins and you can trust Christ today. I know one of your teachers would love to help you understand how to do that. Jesus has loved you. He has freed you from the most severe 
thing that plagues you, and that is your sins. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. And, verse 6 says that He has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. So thirdly, we worship God because of who we are. Who we are in Christ. We are a kingdom and we are priests. You probably don't think of yourself as belonging to a kingdom most of the time, do you? We are a kingdom because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's why we sing and we say and we read in Scripture that He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. We're in a kingdom because the King, Jesus, has made us, those He has freed by His blood, subjects of His kingdom. Now you read in the Old Testament, you read about Israel, and you read about kings in Israel. And all the kings in Israel in the Old Testament gave a preview, a very imperfect preview of what it would be like for God's people to be ruled by a king. They are previewing the one perfect king who one day will come, who will reign on the throne. Jesus will reign in Jerusalem as a king one day, and we will see him, we will live under his reign. But even now, we are a kingdom. Kingdoms aren't small deals, which means our worship is also not a small deal, because we don't worship a small king. We're a kingdom and... John says we are priests. In the Old Testament, priests were the, were the mediators. They were the go-betweens. They were the ones who would represent God's people to Him. If you had to go before God, you wouldn't want to go it alone in the Old Testament. You would want the priest to go, be- go to God before you to make sure that, that you and the rest of the people could be right before God, that your sins would not be counted against you before God. And the way they would do this, uh, there were sacrifices. The death of an animal whose blood was shed on behalf of the people would cover their sins so that they could be represented by the priest before God. Jesus said that He came as a priest. Not to offer an animal on the altar, but to offer Himself as a substitute for us through His death on the cross, so that the sins of His people would be forgiven before God. And now, you and I are priests. What does it mean for us to be priests? Well, it means that we have a responsibility. It means that for the rest of the world, we now represent other people to God. We have the responsibility to show them what God is like and to go to God on their behalf. Not by sacrificing animals on their behalf, but by praying for them and by introducing them to the one who can forgive their sins. That's what it means for us to be a kingdom and priests to our God. These are not menial tasks. These are not thing, this is not busy work. This is not God giving us assignments just so we can be occupied until we get to heaven. This is the highest calling imaginable for us to belong to a kingdom and to be priests before God. And it means that when we worship God, it's a big deal. So we worship Him because of who we are. We also worship God because of His glory and His dominion. So verse 
6, the end of verse 6, John says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory is, is the Bible's way to describe God's uniqueness, His holiness, His, His perfection, the purity of His character, everything that He's about. And He shares all of that with His Son, with Jesus, because John is saying these things about Jesus. To you, Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Dominion means that Jesus' rule and authority, which we mentioned earlier, extends, as we said, even to, the, to all the kings of the earth. He has dominion. He has full authority. So in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel had a vision, and he saw God on his throne, and, uh, and, and, and God on the throne, Daniel says of him, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what Daniel said about God in the Old Testament, John says about Jesus here in the New Testament. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever means that His reign will never come to an end. His glory never fades away. Next, number five, we worship God because of what Christ will do in the future. Because of what Christ will do in the future. So verse seven tells us what he's doing in the future. Verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's coming with the clouds. Daniel, in that same vision, when he was describing God, he he described Him as one who was coming on the clouds of heaven. God on the throne, coming on the clouds of heaven. And John here describes Jesus' future return in the same way. Again, showing that Jesus is God. There's another Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, who made the prediction that every eye would see God and that all the tribes of the earth would mourn when they saw God, when they saw Him at His return. And John here, again, is saying that Jesus is the one of whom Zechariah spoke. Now, why will, there, why will people mourn? Why will people wail? Why will they weep loudly at Jesus' return? And the answer seems to be because of the finality that it represents. He will bring all things to an end in order to make all things new. This is a good thing. This is what we should hope for. As Christians, we don't don't set our hopes on this world and this life becoming everything we want it to be. We need God to intervene and come make it all that He intends for it to be. There's many things that are unpredictable in our World, but the one thing that's certain is that Jesus will return. Jesus will return. This is a this is a comforting thing. This is meant to be a comforting thing for us. 
Again, things in the world, things maybe even in your own life, maybe in your family, and you think, I want all of this to be made right. And the Bible assures us it will. Jesus will return. And we worship God because of what Christ will do when He comes to make all things new. Here's the last one. We worship God because of what Christ declares about Himself. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the first time in Revelation that Jesus Himself speaks. And did you notice that He said about Himself the same thing that John had said about God the Father in verse 4? He is and He was and He is to come. So Jesus Himself is saying, I'm the Almighty, I'm eternal, I'm constant, I don't change. And so when Christians worship God truly, we are also worshiping Jesus. See, Christian worship is, means that Christ is the center of our worship. So why do you worship God? Does what we do in a setting like this matter? Is it that big a deal? Well, John the Apostle thinks so. And these things that are true about God, they're not only true when we gather like this, they're constant. They're true all the time. They're true in all our activities. So I hope that our worship of Him will be constant as well. Let's pray. Father, we do declare with John, to you be glory and dominion forever. We trust that the way you have ruled and reigned throughout eternity, you will do so in the future, and you're doing so now. So I pray that every aspect of our lives will be a response to that, that it will be a worshipful response uh, to you because of who you are and because of all that you have done. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for freeing us from our sins by the blood of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.